IEEE-SA Voice shares insights and perspectives from the IEEE-SA community, subject matter experts, and industry leaders that are working to raise the world's standards, drive market solutions, and much more, keeping you at the forefront of technological innovation for the benefit of humanity. Welcome to the IEEE SA Rethink Health podcast series. I'm your host, Maria Palombini, Director of the IEEE SA Healthcare and Life Sciences Global Practice. This podcast takes industry stakeholders, technologists, researchers, clinicians, regulators, and more from around the globe to task. We ask, how can we rethink the approach to healthcare with the responsible use of new technologies and applications that can afford more security, protection, and sustainable, equitable access to quality care for all individuals? We are currently in season three. You can check out our previous seasons on ieesa.io backslash health podcast. So with season three, our theme is AI for good medicine, which brings a suite of multidisciplinary experts from around the globe to provide insights as to how do we envision artificial intelligence or machine learning or any other deep learning technology to deliver good medicine for all. We all want good medicine, but at what price? Essentially in terms of trust and validation in its use. As healthcare industry stakeholders, we're not looking for the next frontier of medicine if it's not pragmatic, responsible, and can be equitably valuable to all. So just a short disclaimer before we begin, IEEE does not endorse or financially support any of the products or services mentioned and or affiliated with our guest experts in this series. It is now my pleasure to welcome Dr. Dimitri Kalogaropoulos, who is Senior Independent Consultant in Global Health Innovation, Digital Development, and Governance and Policy for organizations including the World Bank, the European Commission, the World Health Organization, UNICEF, and more. Dimitri, welcome to our conversation. Hello. Thank you, Maria, for the welcome. That's correct. 20 years in international development and global health innovation and 30 altogether in the field of measurement and information in medicine and AI. In this season, we go directly to our technologists, clinicians, researchers, ethicists, regulators, and more about how these deep learning technologies can make real and trusted impact on improving outcomes for patients anywhere from drug development to healthcare delivery. The question is, will AI, machine learning, or deep learning cut through the health data swamp for better health outcomes? Let me start by putting things into perspective before I answer your first question. Prior to COVID-19, digital health was not, let's say, a public utility. Instead, it felt as if you were in the luxury watch business. Then overnight, everything changed. The world now perceives health tech as a necessity, the path to universal health coverage, and has set out to discover how to get there. Among other things, embarking on the famous ethics and governance journey, which is luckily beginning to reach some critical junctures. Together with that, the challenge is different now. Going digital is all about addressing both local and global challenges. The latter is now the case more than ever before. For instance, our audience might know the EU has developed a financing instrument for this purpose called the Global Challenges Programme of the Neighbourhood Development and International Cooperation Instrument for Global Europe and has established mechanisms to strengthen collaboration with other global challenges programmes such as the Vaccine Alliance, better known as Gavi. Connectivity has obviously gone global. So how are we faring then? Before the pandemic, a global challenge was to report mortality and morbidity statistics using WHO's by now 11th revision of ICD. 
and to compare these figures on the basis of national statistical compendia. This was also world's kind of common definition of interoperability and interoperable data, and thus not long ago. What happened then is that while being fairly inexperienced, all of a sudden we literally went online. Considering the meantime that we had been using technology for more than three decades to reinforce our transactional models of reality, the society at large and the economy, and then all of a sudden we woke up to a new virtual reality of real-time digital interaction and dashboards. And so interoperability stopped being theory and became a headache. As a reflex, almost, we pulled out anything we could get hold of to show the world we're ready to respond and be responsible about it all, including our decisions concerning COVID-19. And we could no longer make decisions the way we used to. Now evidence is more important than ever before. Since the 2018 World Health Assembly Resolution on Digital Health, which called for a demonstration of a tighter integration of health system strengthening with digital health, including our global crisis responses. Quite simply, this resolution means that embracing digital health becomes more normative and thus more scientific. And this is where my background kicks in, science and ethics in medical decisions and data, in order to build responsible and accountable health systems that deliver and promote equitable, affordable, and universal access to health for all. This is underwritten by a desire to change healthcare and medical research in order to make access more democratic. Now, to make it all clear, none of this has anything to do with how we finance, but how we use financing for the equal benefit of patients and society at large. Now, as for achievements, convincing prior to the pandemic one of the largest multilateral international development organizations to adopt this approach not on one, but on two occasions in Central and East Asia, and to move away from the siloed tech understanding of it all, that, in my opinion, is my greatest achievement. It sounds underplayed, but one has to be in the game to understand that crafting policy is not part of the deployment of international development funds, not before the pandemic anyway. Wow, Dimitri, that's such a powerful opening statement. Right away, you can tap absolutely your passion in this area and all the great work you've done. We often hear, Dimitri, is this intrinsic value in the healthcare system. And although that's true, it has to be instrumental as well. So we have these technologies such as AI, machine learning to extract that insight, but yet we still seem unable to truly rely on it. So the question we're going to face and get through with you today is how can we make the tides turn the right way? You and I know AI, there's this great buzz. We see it everywhere. So many different potential beneficial opportunities throughout the healthcare system. But from your perspective, how pragmatic and realistic are the uses of AI in healthcare? Can it and does it benefit the healthcare system today in its current state? With regard to what I'm seeing, a moment ago, I brought up the significance of the World Health Assembly Resolution on Digital Health toward enabling a future where technology serves good medicine and good health for all. But the question is, four years down the line and after a deadly pandemic, have we learned any lessons? Is health tech now understood as the means to directly influence better care, or is it still seen as a tool for analysis and statistical reflection? What progress have we made toward enabling trusted data sharing for digital diplomacy, for value-based care and economics and pragmatic clinical trials? All these are major targets, but unfortunately to date, I'm afraid I believe we have made very little progress toward these goals. Not so much in terms of results, uh, this will follow, but in terms of changing our mentality when we think health. Instead of enabling a circular economy in health innovation, we're still tapping into whatever pool of data we can get hold of. 
Only now we use AI to feed other AIs, hopefully with reliable data, and then evaluating if that data is indeed reliable. Confusing, no? It is. One key question is, why not make data reliable by design? Make the data trustworthy. Another key question is, why don't we make trusted data available on tap to make the data accessible for any use without doctoring, cleaning it, and curating it as we do currently to develop artificial intelligence? On top of this, one also needs to consider that a higher demand for data means a higher data production factor with industry innovation. But instead of a great restart, we end up with a great pileup of data. Now, in my opinion, we're still turning away from the problem of data or the elephant in the room, and this is because it is a complex one to solve. It is almost political, and we don't really want to invest in its solution. To give you an idea, I was chatting with a friend recently who is very active in European health innovation. So this friend says to me, to attract funding, you need to demonstrate a clear purpose in terms of the problem being solved, right? Well, it makes sense. For example, come up with a treatment for cancer. If only it were that simple, because... We're seeing progress and hope in this domain and in MS, but through the use of new vaccination technology, and that important association is not that clear after all. Simply stated, investors think of market innovation rather than system change platforms or sustaining innovation. And right there lies the core of the problem in this capital misconception that a burst of disconnected but seemingly focused innovation will magically get us to some ideal future that we know little about. To give you a clue, a 2021 Open Data and Action OECD study conducted on early initiatives during the COVID-19 pandemic found there has been a missed opportunity to use data to address the multidimensional implications of the pandemic with sophisticated enough products and services. Well, that went by very fast. Other studies have made this abundantly clear too, indicating that the lack of access to proper data led to a lack of governance, data arriving slowly in a rapidly changing situation, with empty data fields and with patching the bucket processes being the norm. And this report comes from the US. So let's face it, health data is still an abyss, which is why I think it is too early to worry about the consequences of navigational autonomy when we talk about ethics. What we need is autonomous data. Now, the second part about how pragmatic and realistic the uses of AI in healthcare are, well, in a nutshell, there's a huge potential for significant benefits. The largest benefit will come from enabling trusted data sharing because AI-supported clinical processes must be trusted, cost-beneficial in terms of the alternatives or comparators, and ultimately clinically effective and efficient. But since the latter also depends on a patient outcome-oriented utility of each innovation rather than an absolute performance bar, we have to be clear about what we are expecting. Consider, for example, COVID-19 vaccines. They perform relatively poorly in terms of stopping infection and transmission, but they're very good in terms of stopping disease progression and mortality. And this means that we are allowed room for the latter herd immunity to be developed in due time, but not with a vaccine alone. So this vaccine works like a stent, very similar with current AI applications. Let me give you one example. I recently read an article in the European Heart Journal 
on an AI tool for the detection of aortic stenosis from chest radiographs. Now, the study showed that AI could detect stenosis in 83% of the cases. We might consider this 83% not enough. Well, it all depends. What is the average rate of detection, for example, without artificial intelligence? What is the purpose of the tool? And what is the evaluation endpoint? The artificial intelligence will certainly not be patient-facing in this case. A doctor will use it. So then this 83% perhaps is good enough in actual fact. So a comparative analysis can be very illuminating when we judge the performance of artificial intelligence. There's another example of an AI recent evaluation for cancer screening that showed a relative reduction of colorectal cancer of 4.8% and a mortality reduction of 3.6%. And that sounds very low if the data are accurate. But we, we have to look at the significance from a wider angle, the significance of these results, because it was estimated that the decreasing costs per screened individual led to an estimated savings of the order of US 290 million at the US population level. So now that starts making a lot more sense. The real issue here is that the kind of effort required to develop these tools, the effort required to repurpose the tools and update them when bias is detected, and the effort required to integrate the tools into clinical practice, well, it's quite high. The efforts to carry out these tasks is rendering the deployment prohibitive in terms of the overall cost effectiveness of the endeavor. So we need to invest in this problem too. Hey there, did you know that the average patient may have two or more connected medical or fitness devices in, on, around their body operating at one time. Plus, they may have 10 or more smart devices on average operating in their home. How seamless, secure, and private could that patient's personal area network be? IEEE SA's WAMI program, Wearables and Medical IoT Interoperability and Intelligence, has a global community of experts collaborating and incubating solutions for these exact type of challenges. If you want to join in or learn more, visit IEEESA.io backslash WAMI, W-A-M-I-I-I. Also, while on the website, check out the WAMI virtual talk series, free access to more than 30 sessions on demand, plus our regular live broadcasts. Just visit ieesa.io backslash whammy for all the details. Okay, Dimitri, there's a major focal point of AI machine learning about how accurate are the results from the algorithm. The impetus is placed on the algorithm. But what about the data? What are we not addressing when it comes to the data that is being utilized to train these algorithms? It is estimated that the machine learning project must invest 80 to 85% in curating data sets to make it reliable. And then we have to deal with explainability, interpretability, and a host of other issues attached to the available data sources. Our data sources are simply not up to any acceptable reliability standard not when decisions are automated with tools integrated in the clinical environment and therefore have to rely on machines to process things like grand truths and diagnostic gold standards instead of actually just feeding them. But how can we expect any standard of data to reach our AI and other innovations, our research, our decisions, when we know nothing about the origins and quality of this data? We know we cannot trust data, and instead of making it trustworthy before it goes out there in the vast subspace of global health data, we devise instruments to cure it. Again, we're seeing the treatment before prevention pattern. After all, old habits die hard. 
Innovators have even produced AI which scouts the ecosystem for proper data, resorting to the use of synthetic rather than real-world data. But what happened to the original aim behind big real-world data or big data? Well, take a deep breath and imagine deep fakes in health. Scary, right? So with all that, we're essentially rebranding the data issue as an outlier to skew progress completely in the wrong direction and in order to avoid the least attractive of all innovations, that of sharing data. Data about the pandemic and how we may strengthen our health system to deal with the next one should not require a global operation of the scale and scope conducted by the WHO to get hold of. Here I'm referring to the excess mortality study, which required vast resources to produce valuable insights. This kind of insight should be available on those dashboards that became so popular because of the pandemic, a new kind which tells you what to look out for when you have X or Y comorbidities and which medicines to avoid as a result. The bottom line is, it is time we started using data to its true capacity to save lives and improve access to care. And with the new wave of AI, I see both an opportunity to change that, as well as a huge risk that we waste the opportunity in all its grief because we don't understand the extent or exact nature of the stale data predicament. Interesting. I know you mentioned this before, data is an abyss. And there's been so much focus on data and that data is an asset. However, like anything else, when data sits stagnant, it has less value, not only to helping the patient, but the overall advancement of healthcare. How can we make data more active and valuable? Is it something like more open data sharing? Could it be better integration to clinical care, better integration with technologies? What is your perspective on how we can make data more active and valuable? All of the above. To make data more active and valuable, we need to adopt the recommendation made in the World Bank's 2021 flagship report, Data for Better Lives. The model it proposes of value, equity, and trust as the social contract for data. With that, we need to build up policies and roadmaps for digital development in health in order to provide for directionality and steer the implementation of this social contract. Last but not least, technology policies have to match our normative governance frameworks and institutions must adapt to embrace new horizon scanning and portfolio-based system change approaches which are underwritten by our scans, ethnographic research and much more. Regulatory tools such as GDPR are important, but we need to keep in mind once we start encouraging the flow of data, we need to have the mechanisms in place to safeguard trust in the data too. And this, despite appearances, is far from being on the table as a key issue. We also need to keep in mind tools such as software as a medical device in the US or the EU's MDR and GDPR, albeit very important, are extremely inefficient for changing the tide. We need to call it out. We have been wrong about what interoperability means and entails. A little food for thought. How are we going to implement the all-important quaternary prevention operations that public health needs and we are lacking and relevant AMR, antimicrobial resistance policies without interoperability? And this to name but one major pain area. Wow, that's a very insightful point. A good question for our audience to start thinking about. You know, I like to do this with my guests. I call it the think fast question. So here it is. When I mention AI for good medicine, what's the first thing that comes to mind and why? Good medicine for AI, because digital health is a mirror. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's something insightful to think about. We talk about ethics in AI for various important reasons, and we talk about it in the form of validated and responsible use for healthcare. 
From your perspective, what are the ethical considerations that are not getting enough attention when it comes to the use of these types of technologies in the healthcare system? This article I read quite a while ago about how understanding racial heritage can save lives. I was very alarmed with that article, and I think it's very relevant because this is about the ethics of data, algorithms, pathophysiology models, and relevant decision-informing devices like AI. Also about the collapse of ethics when digital development in health and vast data is not inclusive, leading to racial, gender-based, or other forms of bias. Now, this that article I mentioned presents a case about how early-stage chronic kidney disease is similar across racial and ethnic groups. Black people are almost four times more likely than white people to develop end-stage kidney disease, and how racially tilted estimated GFR markers have been causing thousands of black people with kidney problems to wait longer to get on the transplant list. Only to now discover that the race-based calculations used in the U.S. after 1999 misled patients and their doctors to believe their kidneys were working better than they really were, also affecting decisions about medications, diets, lifestyle that could have worsened kidney damage or created other medical risks. Now, consider this formula and something much larger than this would go into a decision-informing system. Uh, the consequences could be dire. Every year, the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI compiles an AI index that sums up the state of play in AI. This year, in a whopping 190 pages. So I recently read an IEEE spectrum summary of 12 charts, making some basic inferences of my own to capture this state of play from the ecosystem ethics perspective. And here they are. Number one, investment in AI is off the hook with the number of financing rounds climbing. So single projects attract more financing than new projects do. And this is not necessarily a good thing. Number two, there is still a disconcerting gap between corporate recognition of AI risks and attempts to mitigate those risks. Number three, AI vision has reached a plateau, which means we need to look elsewhere for progress, perhaps something wrong with our data. Number four, reasoning is still a frontier of AI. Number five, ethics everywhere. Number six, the legislature is paying attention. Number seven, the carbon footprint of the current AI pipelines is finally being noticed, which begs the question, hasn't anyone heard of digital recycling? Number eight, the data ethics problem is clearly still the elephant in the room. And finally, number nine, AI needs women as men are clearly bad at building AI. We don't have enough creativity, obviously, in artificial intelligence. There's a point later on I want to come back to with regard to bias in developing systems and actually running them afterward. These are the ethical considerations that we need to pay more attention to. Wow, that's a very strong, I would call it a top 10 list, something to definitely think about. And really, a lot of areas like the digital recycling not being discussed or addressed, at least as pervasive and important as it should be right now. So very important insight. My next question is about the vulnerabilities when it comes to patient data. In your opinion, what are some of these threats? I think you've just outlined some really hard-hitting ones. Where do you think potentially global technical or data standards may be of important consideration to maybe help resolve some of these issues? Vulnerabilities haven't changed. The threats haven't changed. And when I say they haven't changed, I'm referring to the past 25 years. Let me quote part of one of my PhD publications, which was written 25 years ago. I quote, 
The rapidly disseminated practices of evidence-based medicine and outcomes-based medicine or disease management, concepts which were born and developed within the realm of measurement and information in medicine and associated technologies, have led to the proliferation of quite a number of approaches to clinical decision-making support. Some of these include the use of advanced IT, while some other have negligently avoided the use of the underlying enabling tools. Evidence-based clinical guidelines and care pathways are but a taste. Doesn't that sound current? In many ways, we're still doing exactly the same thing that we were doing 25 years ago. A lot of potential, very little application in real life. This is a major threat. So as proud as I am for having conducted this research two decades ago, I'm astonished that two decades later, we still have to deal with the same impediments to achieve progress in the transformation of our health systems to patient-centered systems through digital enablement and support. I'm optimistic, nonetheless, that we are not going to wait another two decades as great achievements are being reported in terms of digital in the service of new grassroots social governance models and change in other sectors. Together with blockchain and other by now not so much frontier technologies, new superhighway change platforms are being delivered to morph and influence the future we all envisage for our health ecosystems. Sure, there's hype in there too, so what? Now, as far as standards go, there are plenty underwriting data interoperability such as ICD-11, ATC, LOINC, SNOBED, clinical terms, with their application and utility in the context of COVID-19, cancer, outcomes classification, and other new knowledge and data classification domains constantly expanding. Then there is FIRE, with HL7 covering a lot of the ground from basic messaging interoperability to discrete data set modeling within messages. Fast health interoperability resources is what FIRE refers to. But we need much more to reach a full set. We need to cover structural and organizational interoperability, or SOI, and there we lack significantly. By SOI, I'm referring to phenotyping genotypes, enabling the clinical applications of precision medicine, building ethical AI by doing away with the need to provide handwritten annotations in order to frame the genotypes or to engineer ground truths. I believe we have all heard the case about AI detecting as a diagnostic pattern the doctor's ink signature in annotated images. And this is something that we have to stop from happening if we are to trust these devices. Let me add one more experience. A few years ago, I was consulting with a group from a technology-savvy country in an international development project. This group reacted strongly to my proposal to use ISO 3940 standard in, in the core set, which is, by the way, the only, as well as a very mature SOI standard, structure and organizational interoperability standard for clinical data modeling in support of continuity of care. To my great surprise, I recently heard that a particular group is studying the application of the standard in their home country. So the message here is clear. Keep an open mind, think outside the box, form cohesive collaboration teams, and make digital development far more efficient than it currently is. Because in terms of implementation capacity, we are currently struggling significantly behind the regulatory front runner 
or rabbit. Wow, that's great insight. I think you've given us so much today. I think with every single response, there's been some call to get a reference site, to think about different ways of situation. For our audience, this has been very helpful. My final question to you is, are there any final thoughts you would like to share with our audience? We have a very broad audience. It could be technologists, clinicians, regulators, researchers. Is there a call to action potentially for a data scientist out there or an AI technologist who's working with the data may already be in this domain or is interested in getting into the healthcare domain? What is your final imparting thoughts to them? Yes, Maria, there are three things I would like to mention. The first one is thinking at the crossroads of leadership and innovation, data governance, that equity and inclusiveness in design teams and design thinking will breed equitable and inclusive designs. This is what I mentioned earlier when I said that women and men are not equally participant in the AI development process. This is probably the most important message technology can deliver for learning health systems that truly empower the patients to think outside the box, to think without the box in healthcare, we need to empower and engage patients and the community as the teams that will design tomorrow's equitable and inclusive health systems. And for this, gaining the trust to share data is of paramount importance. Trust that will be used to create health systems that learn how to be equitable and inclusive. With regard to decision scientists or data scientists, I understand that in 1996, the International Federation of Classification Societies became the first conference to specifically feature data science as a topic. Also the year that I completed my PhD research. Now, with data science being recognized as a field of science and application, we need to expand our perimeter to safeguard trusted information engineering. Data science needs to push its boundaries and to close the loop from data to knowledge and back to recycled data to support longitudinal data and to protect the temporal and semantic value of clinical data for providers and for society at large. And last but not least, the ultimate secret is keep your eyes on the integrated care crosshairs. Focus on concepts like bundled services and value-based outcome-oriented clinical decisions to reveal the path to longitudinal data, provider interoperability, and trusted data sharing. Remember that digital health is a mirror. In the process, think big, but always start small. Allow me to also add that further information can be found in articles I publish on LinkedIn Pulse. And with that, thank you for the invitation, Maria, and for being such an excellent host. I hope we get to chat again in one of your upcoming seasons of Rethink Health. Thank you. Absolutely. Dimitri, you've given us so many great insights. Our next season is going into telehealth, but a lot of the points you brought up today definitely refer to that whole new paradigm of patient-centered healthcare. And so to all of you out there, many of the concepts in our conversation with Dimitri today are addressed in various activities throughout the IEEE SA Healthcare Life Science Practice. The mission of the practice is engaging multidisciplinary stakeholders and have them collaborate, build consensus, and develop potential solutions in an open standardized means to support innovation that will enable privacy, security, and equitable, sustainable access to quality care for all. Some of our activities include WAMI, wearables and medical IT interoperability intelligence, transforming the telehealth paradigm, responsible innovation of AI for the life sciences, and a host of other areas all across the healthcare life science domain. If you're interested in getting involved and learning more about the programs I mentioned and the others that are in our activity list, please visit ieesa.io 
backslash HLS. If you enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to share it with your peers, colleagues on your social media networks. This is the only way we can get these important discussions out into the domain by you helping us to get the word out. Be sure to use hashtag IEEEHLS or tag us on Twitter at IEEESA or on LinkedIn, IEEE Standards Association when sharing this podcast. So to you, the audience, a special thank you for listening in. Continue to stay safe and well. Until next time. On behalf of IEEE Standards Association and IEEE SA Voice, thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit standards.ieee.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.